while our children can go ahead and slide out to Transformation Station. And as they're sliding out, if you'll go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got many scattered throughout the seats here. You can grab one of those and it'll be on page 998. 998. Well, most of you know that if you need to find me on any given Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night, there's a great likelihood that I'm at work as a server at P.F. Chang's in Cambridge Side Galleria Mall, right there behind the Royal Sinesta on the Charles River. I'm happy to say that I am one of the oldest that work there, and I've been there probably the longest of almost everyone there. Now, most of that has to do with me working with college students, trying to make their way through school, and so college students struggle keeping a job longer than three months or so, um, and most of them usually get bitten by the bed monster. Um, too many times, eats them up, and so that kind of hinders their opportunity at P.F. Chang's. Um, even so, it is a, it is a joy and a, and a fun opportunity for me. But when I show up down there, I show up at P.F. Chang's, I walk in the door, the first thing that's given to me every shift is this sheet of paper. And you know what it says at the top? Are you ready? This is the question that I'm posed every time that I show up for a shift. Now before I can take any tables and start bringing home the cache, as I like to say, and putting the bread on the table, I've got to fill out this Are You Ready card. And so I start working down and I've got to put my name on it. I've got to put the date on it. I've got to put my section on it. I've got to write down which tables are mine. And I've got to write down what time that I actually start and the legal age so that I'll know who can order an alcoholic beverage or not. And then it works on down through this. Is my uniform ready? Do I have pens? Do I have paper? Am I set? And then on down. And I've got to answer questions about food, about beverage. Every time that I walk in, are you ready, John? Is the question that is thrown before me. John, you know, on this one that I'm, I'm holding here, the Singapore street noodles. What are the service points for this dish? How are you going to sell this dish to the guest that comes in just a few moments? The cultural focus. Man, what is the optimal dining experience at P.F. Chang's? What is the focus of this? Why does my manager make me do this every shift? What does he want? He wants me to excel, right? He wants me to be ready. He wants to have my mind set, my mind focused, so when I get that first table, that, that I'm going to deliver the message. And here's the message of P.F. Chang's. We are truly glad you're here, and we will do everything we can to make you want to come back. Now let me ask you this, if I don't know the table section that I have, and they see the table that's in my section but I'm clueless, and they sit there, do you like sitting at a table for 10 minutes and, and a server hasn't come to even greet you yet? No, is that going to make you want to come back? If, I can't, if, if you ask me a question about what's on the menu and I can't explain the Singapore street noodles, are you going to order that? Probably not. I mean, you're going to be taking a chance. 
This is what is our management team has seen as, as a way to get us ready to have an excellent shift. Now, here's what I want to pose to you today. Just as my management team wants to see me excel at P.F. Chang's, Paul and Titus has a burning passion to see the saints at Crete thriving for the glory of God. Specifically, he wants to see them ready for good works. We've seen this theme as we're, we're coming to a conclusion here in Titus over the next few weeks. We've seen one of the main themes has been this. Sound doctrine and sound deeds, or right doctrine and right deeds. There's a connection between what you believe and how you live. And the, the point here, Paul's desire, is that if you truly know God, you will not be the same. Your life will overflow. It'll be transformed with good deeds. So as we come to this text today, in Titus 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through a, we're going to see that, that Paul is now turning and addressing the issue of them living under rulers and with outsiders. We've seen over the past few chapters, he's talked about elders in the local church and establishing leaders. He's talked about discipling relationships, the older men engaging the younger men, the older women and the younger women. And now he's turning to the outside. How do you live as a Christian under government, under rulers, and specifically, how do you live with non-believers, with non-Christians? That is the question, that is the point that he's going to get at today. So if you've got your Bible there, we're going to start reading here in Titus chapter 3, and this is what Paul says, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, before we jump in here, I just want to highlight a few things on the structure of our passage. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. You'll see at the very end of verse 1, he's talking about submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. And then he says, to be ready for every good work. We see in verse 1 this emphasis on good works. And then in verse 8, the last verse in this text here, this passage, we see in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
Do you see the thrust here? At the beginning, there's a focus on good works. At the end, there's a focus on good works. That is his primary focus. He wants the believers to be devoted to good works. Now just step back for a second. Why does he continue to talk about good works? Well, just as by way of reminder, when we go back to chapter one, we see Paul introducing us to the false teachers that were in the church there. And he goes through these false teachers, and one of the primary ways he describes them is in verse 16. And he says, though they claim to know God, they deny him by their works. And so he's combating that. He said, you are not to be like them. If you claim to know God, people, it should be evident. People should see that by the way you live your life. It ought to be evidenced in the good works that you do. So the primary point, the main point that I want you to see today is this, is that we should be ready. You should be ready to imitate God's kindness to sinners in your interaction with government and all people. Imitate God's kindness to sinners in your interactions with government and all people. And as, as we look at that main point, that thrust, I think Paul gives us three truths here as we walk through the text to prepare us to do this and excel well in this. And the first truth that I want to give you is this, is devote yourself to godly living and good works. I mean, this is plain and simple. We see this at the very beginning of chapter 3 in verses 1 and 2 and then in verse 8. And what he does here, he does something similar to what he does in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But then does he lay out sound doctrine? No. He gives characteristics of a godly life. And only later does he give the sound doctrine. He's going to do the same thing here. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he's going to describe, these are the good works you ought to be doing. And then we're going to see in verses 3 through 7, he's going to lay out the doctrinal focus that should be the motivation behind these good works. So let's look at these. And let's just walk through these. And we want to be asking the question, okay, am I ready for good works, specifically for these good works? What is the first one he highlights here in verse 1? He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Now, this is one of the ones that he hits early on because we see the false teachers that he addresses back in chapter 1. Just look at verse 10 in chapter 1. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And as he's looking at these false teachers, one of the things that describes them is they're not submissive. They are not obedient. They're actually characterized as disobedient. I've got to, I mean, Paul, Peter really lays this out in 1 Peter 2.12. He says this, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You may be asking, okay, why submit to rulers? Why be obedient? Paul has a focus here, and Peter too, is that we should live in such a way with outsiders that shows everybody how great our God is. That we should glorify our God. I mean, in, in our relationship with our God, I mean, what is the one of the primary ways that we would see our relationship with God? It's submission, Right? God is Lord, God is King, and we submit to His rule and His reign in our lives. I mean, we see throughout the Scriptures, 
God is king and you are called to obey. And this should flesh itself out in every single one of our relationships. Let me ask you a question. Would you say, let me ask you this, those that know you best, how about outsiders, those you work with, those in your neighborhood, do you think they would say that, man, Tanner, he's a guy that is just characterized by obedience and submissiveness? Or what about you? What would they say? Would they say, you know what, that person is really a rebel. They don't want to come under, underneath authority. They want to be their own king, their own boss. You know, one of the things that we've got to learn early on is that we are not the rulers. We are not king. God is. Now, let me just qualify this for a second because we are talking about rulers, about government. Let me say this. Our ultimate authority is to God, which means if I've got a conflict between government and authority, do you know who gets my utmost allegiance? God does. And there may be a time pretty soon where we're going to be forced to choose between obedience to God and his word or government. But God is supreme. We see this in Acts chapter 5. When Peter and John are thrown in prison and they, they tell them, hey, don't speak any more of this Jesus. You know what they say? They say in Acts chapter 419, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And then later on in Acts 5, they say we must obey God rather than men. So when there's a conflict, God must be supreme. But in other issues, you know what, for, for the most part, I'll say life in America here, it's not, a, it's not an issue between obeying God and obeying government. The main issue is our own rebellion, is that we really just want to be rulers and kings. We think that we know best, and it's really displayed in a very prideful and arrogant mindset. How would you be characterized? Are you ready to, good, to do good works? Are you ready to display the glory of God, even how you act with government? What's the second thing he says here? He continues on. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. This is, this is something that ought to characterize our lives, that there's an eagerness, that when we wake up in the morning, that what we're going to be about is an eagerness, a readiness for good works. Would you say this, this is what consumes your mind, your thought, drives you when you wake up? Do you wake up in bed thinking, would you wake up in the morning thinking, God, how can I surprise others today? How can I bless others today? How can I be eager and ready? God, God, I, I'm eager. I'm ready. I want to do something. Do you roll out of bed that way? Paul's saying this ought to be the cultivating mindset of our lives. He continues on. The third one he says there, he says in verse two, to speak evil of no one. You see, we should not be slanderous but encouraging with our words. You know what? You can tell a lot about a person by watching what they say, what they talk about, and how they treat others. I mean, this is what Paul's getting at. I mean, he's talking about just real things, not just what you believe, but how do you treat your neighbor next door? Do you speak evil of them? How do you treat... Maybe even those in your own family, those you work with, day in, your boss, your coworkers, your friends. Are you slanderous? Do you speak evil of them? I mean, this is where the gospel takes root in us. Now, don't 
take me wrong here. I'm not saying that we should never correctly evaluate. Paul does that, right? What do we see in chapter 1? What is Paul speaking against? Man, the false teachers. He is calling them out. And so there is a role for proper critique. But I will say this. I think what he's getting at is he's, he's urging us to restrain our natural inclination to say the worst about people. If we were to be honest, what are we inclined to do? We're inclined to say the worst. So let me ask you this. What's your inclination? As you go throughout your day, is your inclination to bless, to encourage, to lift up, or is it to destroy? You see, your words can kill or they can give life. He continues on in, in verse 2. Not only speaking evil of no one, he says, to avoid quarreling. Look, we should, be, we should not be those who are seeking to stir up dissension. We should be those who have a desire to bring peace and peacemakers. Man, are, are you the person that is, that is bringing peace? Are you the person that's destroying relationships? Now, why might, why might we pursue a lifestyle of seeking peace? Well, we're going to see in a second, but I'll go ahead and give you a glimpse. What does God do? God ultimately has taken the initiative to make peace with us, his enemies. And so in seeking peace, we display the glory of God and how he reconciles sinners to himself. He continues on. He says, you're to be gentle and then to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Look at the emphasis here. Perfect courtesy toward all people. He's being emphatic here that you, you ought to be, you ought to have all gentleness to all people. This is in contrast to harshness, a bad temper, or sudden anger. Man, I know we've kind of flown through these, but I wanted to just lay these out as real practical. Man, if you want to shoot for something, if this week you want to say, what can I do to grow in godliness and to put on the picture of Christ? Take these qualities and be eager and pray for God to give you opportunities to practice these in your life this week. What would non-Christians say about you? Are you ready for good works? Are you ready? The second truth I want to share with you, starting in verse 3, is this. Not only should we be de devoting ourselves to good works, but we should remember the depths of your sin. Remember the depths of your sin. You're probably saying, hold up, John. What's going on here? Look at verse 3. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures. What are you doing here, Paul? Why are you, you going to talk about what we used to do? Why are you going to look at my past? Well, what he's doing is he's already addressing an objection. And you know what the objection is? It's this. Paul, you want me to be gentle, but these people that I'm around are not easy to be gentle with. You, you want me not to speak evil? They speak evil of me. You want me to show perfect courtesy? They don't show me any courtesy. Do you see what he's getting at? Because the natural objection, and you're probably saying, okay, John, this is great. We can talk about it here in a nice, peaceful environment here at church. But you don't, you're probably saying, thinking, you don't know what it's like in my house, in my neighborhood, in my job. Paul does. And you know what he's reminding us here? Before you say, man, these people, 
They're not easy to love. He wants you to look square in the face and say, you know what? That used to be you. And if it were not for the grace of God, that would still be you. So what I want to do here, I'm going to pray that God would help us to think rightly about our sin. It's not always fun to look ourselves in the mirror and see all the bad things. But let me tell you this. You got to get this. Understanding sin and the problem is the primary thing you've got to get if you're going to understand anything about God. So what we see here in verse 3, he starts out with a similar conversion formula where he says, we ourselves once were this way, but now because of God, we are another way. Um, so let's look here. What's wrong with us? Propaganda says this. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that there's something wrong with us. Every religion agrees something's wrong. Here's the question. What is it? And this is what I would pose for you today. Look, something's wrong in this world. Everybody, every religion, every worldview sees this is not how it is supposed to be. It's how you answer this question, what's wrong, that determines man, how you view yourself and how you view God. So what's the problem? Let's look and see what Paul says here. Look at verse 3. We're going to see that the problem is sin, and the problem isn't external. The problem is internal. The problem is inside of every single one of us. So he says here, we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions. What we're going to see here is that sin has holistically distorted everything about us. Look here, I want to just walk through some of these with you. Sin has distorted your mind. What does it say here? We once were foolish. We once were unreceptive to spiritual truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this age has blinded the eyes, the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God, to keep us foolish. Sin affects your mind. Secondly, sin affects your will. What does it say here? We're not only foolish, but we're disobedient and led astray. You exercise your will against God and his purposes. You are opposed and enemies of God. It affects your mind. It affects your will. Naturally, you can look at my kids. You can look at any kids. You can look at your kids. Kids do not have the inclination and the desire to obey. They have the desire to disobey. And so as we naturally try to explain, why is this? What is the problem? We look internally. The problem is not external. The problem is, is they're sinners. And this is what sin does. It distorts their mind. It distorts their will. Martin Luther says this, A man's free will indeed avails for nothing except to sin. So if you're going to say, you've got free will, I'll say yes, but you'll choose sin every single time apart from the grace of God. Thirdly, it affects your emotions. Look here, it says that you are led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, pleasures. Your affections are distorted by sin, causing you to delight in evil. 
Sin makes us think that bad things are good things, and sin gives us desires, even trying to convince us these bad things are good things. So how do we explain these desires? Our desires are distorted because of sin. Fourth, your actions. Now it plays itself out, right? Your thinking, your will, your desire, now it plays itself out in your actions. So behaviorally and morally, we are passing our days, it says, in malice and envy. Because of sin, we fail to discern correctly between right and wrong. And then finally, man, our relationships are a wreck. Sin distorts our relationships. It says, we are hated by others and hating one another. You know, what that, you know what I see every single time that messes up my relationship with my wife? It is sin. What messes up relationships with everybody around me? It's sin. It's going to be in one of us. Sin distorts relationships so that we're not only alienated from God and opposed to His will, man, we are selfish in all of our relationships. Are distorted. Now I know what you're thinking. I know some here have come to understand this truth and grasp it. Others of you are probably a little skeptical. And you're saying, man, I'm not convinced. I'm not sure. And here's what your response is. You probably, if I were to ask you today, you would probably say, you know what? I'm really not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. If we were to go ask multiple people out on the street, hey, if you were to die today, why would God let you into heaven? You know what? most people would say, man, I'm pretty good. I'm not that bad. And so lovingly today, this isn't my opinion. I mean, we're just looking at the text here and this is what Paul says. Sin has radically distorted me. I'm not just pointing the finger. I'm looking at me. This was me. I once was this way. But you know what we try to do? Silly us. We try to justify ourselves by pointing to people far worse than us. And so you know what? You probably even caught yourself doing this this week. Man, a horrible tragedy happened this week. You guys are all familiar with it. James Holmes walks in a theater and 12 end up dead and 58 injured, right? You've heard of it. And we look at that and we say, how could anybody do that? Another big one in the news, Jerry Sandusky, former coach, Penn State. What do we look at that? Man, he was just convicted of 45 counts of sexual abuse. And we look and we say, filthy. Man, how could anybody do that? And we look at others and we want to justify ourselves. Man, I'm not as bad as James. I'm not as bad as Jerry. Man, I'm actually pretty good. And you know what? I want to show you a few verses here. Jesus actually tries to get a heart of this some in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, You've heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who was angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Let me tell you this. I haven't killed 12 people and injured 58 more. But I'm guilty of murder through anger of probably hundreds of people. Look at this other one. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know what? I haven't done what Jerry Sandusky's done, but I've committed adultery with hundreds of women with lustful thought. Guys, we're not good. And you know what we try to justify? We try to justify by our actions, but the scripture even goes deeper than that. And it's talking about your thoughts. Man, have you ever had a thought and said, oh man, where did that come from? Have you ever just had one of those evil, wicked thoughts and said, where did that come from? Whether it's a dream, whether, man, you're just laying in bed and you've, guess, sin distorts Every pe- we are holistically distorted by sin. How bad is it? Martin Luther says this. All our faculties are leprous indeed, are dull and utterly dead. Sin is like a virus that has spread through our bodies and we are holistically depraved. So let me go back to this statement by Propaganda. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it? We've just answered, what is it? The next question is, how do we fix it? Because how you answer this last one is going to get you going in the right path or the wrong path. Because for some of us, the answer to how we fix it is this. We'll just hope up, we'll heap up some good deeds, right? We'll pray, we'll chant, we'll meditate, we'll go to church, we'll throw some change in the offering plate, and that'll make all things good. But here's the problem. Propaganda continues on and he says this. Trying to do that is like spraying cologne on a dead corpse and pretending it don't stink. You get that? Man, if we are holistically depraved and dead, it doesn't do any good to spray cologne on a dead corpse. It still stinks. It needs new life. So the good news is I'm not going to stop with verse 3 today. I want us to move on to verse 4. Because in verse 4, we find some very good news. God meets every single one of our needs and the problem, he solves it in the gospel. So the third truth I want you to get today is to relish the treasures of the gospel. Relish the treasures of the gospel. When we come to Titus 3, verse 4, we have this great but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Notice who initiates. We were sinners, but God. And what we see in these few verses here is we see the work of the Trinity. And, and that's, what, that's what I want us to help us, help us to see here is the role the Father, the Son, and the Spirit play in this glorious work of salvation to help us to relish the treasures of the gospel. So the first aspect I want you to see here is this. The Father is the ultimate source, planner, and initiator of salvation. And I want to share a parallel passage because this is great here. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, For while we were still sick, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get this? 
Jesus didn't die for good people. While we were still sinners, he died. I want you, you got to get this. God's initiation of kindness and love is not because you did something good or I did something good. Our tendency is to think, well, that I did something either pre-Christian or even after becoming a Christian, that I've done something that would make God love me or like me. And the truth is, that's not the case. That is not the case. And so you may be asking, okay, John, bring it back here. Because why aren't we talking about the gospel? I thought we were talking about how to live with rulers and with unbelievers. Well, here's where he's going. Paul is giving you a picture, an example to follow. For when you say, how can I love this person? How can I be gentle with them? How can I not be slanderous with them? He's going to say this. Look at what God has done with you. Do you get it? You were once enemies of God, but he showed his loving kindness and goodness to you. Therefore, go and do the same. You're not to wait for somebody to become a Christian or even do something good to you for you to do good to them. Paul's saying, before they even do a drop of goodness for you, go and initiate good works. Be ready for good works. That is the picture of the gospel. That's how it gains root and it changes your life. When you see that God has initiated, not on your merit, but on his own character. This is the gospel. This is what God has done. So let's get clear about this. God didn't initiate with you because you were good. God initiated because this is who he is. He is loving. He is kind. And, and Paul makes it explicit, right? It says in verse 5, he saved us not because of what? Not because of works. Guys, we can't get any clearer. There is no amount of works you could do to remove the sin in your life. Like a corpse, we're dead. Dead people, can't, you need new life. And so, man, none of us have a chance when standing before God. Even all of our good works, standing before God, man, God is holy, God is perfect, God is righteous, all of them fall. So we see the Father initiates this with his goodness, with his loving kindness, and he has saved us not by works, but by his own mercy. It is undeserved unmerited favor. But secondly, we see the Son provides complete redemption through His obedient life and atoning death. The Son provides complete redemption through His obedient life and atoning death. I want to share another parallel passage. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we see the doctrine addressed here is the doctrine of justification. This is what happens in Christ. Christ do you see the, the main truth here is the son provides redemption through his obedient life and his death. You see, Jesus and the cross would have meant nothing if he didn't live a perfect life. What you need is you need a perfect Jesus and you need an atoning savior. And we have that in Christ. He never sinned. Is what the scripture says. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus never tasted the guilt of sin. He knew none of it. And yet he took on our sin. He lived the life that we couldn't 
and he died the death that we, <clears throat> excuse me, that we deserved. Reflect with me for a second. The sin we talked about a second ago, your mind, your will, your emotions, your behavior, your actions, your relationships, every evil thought, Jesus paid the penalty for all of them. And he did it willingly and freely. This ought to do something in your heart. You have a debt of sin that you cannot repay ever. And Jesus says, give me the note, I'll pay it. This is the gospel. And then the third aspect that we see here in the Trinity is that the Holy Spirit applies, makes effective, and preserves the redemption Christ bought to those who believe. What we see introduced here is the doctrine of regeneration. This is what it says here in verse 5. It says, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Bruce Demarest defines regeneration as this. Regeneration is that work of the spirit at conversion that renews the heart and life and thus restoring the person's intellectual, volitional, moral, emotional, and relational capacities to know, love, and serve God. So you know what happens in regeneration? Whereas sin holistically distorted my life, the Spirit comes in and makes me whole. My intellect, my will, my morals, my emotions, the Spirit makes me alive. He changes them. This is good news. How do we fix the distortion of sin? You come to the gospel where God renews and regenerates by the Spirit. You will not fix the problem of sin in your life apart from the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the gospel. This is it. And this is what it means when we see verses in the, vibe, in the Bible like 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Or Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. You were dead, you are now alive. Or John chapter 3, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. This is what it means. To be born again, to become a new creation, to be dead and made alive. This is what God does at conversion through the Spirit. So check this out. Just as sin spreads like a virus and invades every inch of our bodies, the Spirit spreads as the antibiotic to cure every inch of your life. The sin distorts, but the Spirit renews and gives life. So when the Spirit gets a hold of you, do you know what the Spirit does? It makes a selfish man self-denying. It makes a sluggard zealous. It makes a drunkard sober. It makes the sensual pure, the liar truthful, the proud humble, the greedy generous, the ungodly godly. 
So let me just pose a question as we wrap up. How do you know if you've been regenerated, if you've been made alive, if you've been born again? How do you know if you're a new creation? I've got a few verses I want to share with you. One in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. How do you know where the Spirit's at work? Can anybody see the wind? No, but you see its effects. I can't see the Spirit, but I can tell when the Spirit gets a hold of somebody. Now, for those of you that live in West Medford and East Arlington, this picture here may have been familiar with you. I don't know how well you guys can see it here, but when this storm came through the other night, the microburst in East Arlington, huge tree down in my front yard. This is it. Huge tree crashes on the front of my house. Providentially, it hit the right side and didn't damage the place that we're at, so our landlord's taking care of it. But here's the deal. We don't see the wind. When this microburst comes in, I didn't see it. But you know what I did see? I saw its effects. You go drive through and you see street after street after street blocked off with trees down on the road. And you say, what happened? The wind blew pretty hard. How do you know if you've been born again? A good tree produces good fruit. You see the effects. If the Spirit transforms your life, it will evidence itself in good works. But let me, let me give another verse to kind of help us process through this. And this is the one that Micah read earlier. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. What's it say? You heard the gospel, and you did what? You believed. What happened? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So I would say this, man, if you're here today, and you see the distortion of sin in your life, and you're acknowledging, man, there's a problem. The problem is sin. How do I fix it? You know the, the fix, the solutions in the gospel. What do you do? This is what you do. You hear these truths, and you believe. You put all of your hope in the promises of God found in the gospel, that God is good and loving and kind, that Jesus was perfect, and he died to pay for every single one of your sins. You put all of your hope in that, and you repent of your sin, you hate it, you turn from it, and you pray to God to help you to live, to follow him with your life. You repent and you believe. And you know what? You can do that now. And I would plead with you today, if you haven't been born again, believe, repent, believe right now. You just talk to God. Have mercy on me. You and God talk, and you flesh this out with him and draw near to Him. The big picture, my prayer and desire is just like Paul's, that we would have a church, a people that are eager and ready for good works. I know of no greater motivation than to look at the work of God on undeserving sinners. Look to the gospel and may this be your are you ready motivation. And go and be gentle and kind and submissive and obedient, even to those who don't deserve it, so that you can tell them, look at my great God, 
who was merciful and kind to me, and I didn't deserve it. Are you ready? Let's go do good works. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, I need these truths because I'm daily reminded of my sin and I need to be reminded of the regeneration, the renewal, the justification, the righteousness that's found in Christ. So God, would these truths continue to be real for me that we would all continue to put our hopes not on any past prayer that we've made or any baptism, but it would be solely on Christ. God, would you give us great affections now, great desires, great wills, great actions, great relationships, not only with you, but with others for your glory. God, I pray that your spirit would now continue to progressively renew us and make us whole. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.